yeah, what a joy it is to worship together, um, reminding ourselves of truly what a friend we have in Jesus, humbly admitting our imperfections, um, but then desperately acknowledging our need for Jesus. So, so thank you so much, Wes and Julia, for that. Um, as you turn to ch- uh, Matthew chapter 26, um, we're continuing our Matthew series. Um, I'm going to jump back a little bit to Matthew 20. Uh, you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read two verses that will help us understand the context of where we're at and where we're going and what, what Matthew is doing here. Uh, so in Matthew 20, uh, He says this in verse 17, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and on the way he said, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock, scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. So I think here we see um, Jesus and his disciples are on their way. Now we're already in Jerusalem, and uh, Nathan last week finished up the Olivet Discourse, which was 23 through 25, a four-part series on how we are to live between the times of Jesus, between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And his premise that he expounded from the text was, we are ready for Jesus' second coming by trusting in Christ. That's, that's it. But then Jesus also expounds on saying how you treat the king's people is a direct reflection of your relationship with the king. And we often hear this formula, which I don't think you could um, base soteriology on just a formula, faith plus works equals salvation, which I, I, I don't think is necessarily true. This isn't original to me, but I like the for, I tend to go with the formula faith equals salvation plus works. It's a little bit different, but I think the idea goes with what Nathan was talking about last week was trusting Christ, which is our faith, or which is our salvation, plus our treatment of, of our people or of God's people is essentially what our faith kind of boils down to. So it's a, it's a decent summary. And now Matthew starts transitioning over and starts shifting his gears towards the last two chapters, which is the passion narrative, also known as the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so with that context in mind, um, I'll read Matthew 26, 1 through 16. We'll pray, and then I'll give a quick overview of um, what the layout of my sermon, and then we'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll start. So Matthew 26, 1 through 16. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon, which, by the way, is about two miles away from Jerusalem, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it out on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, 
They were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you uh, would send the Spirit amongst us, that the Holy Spirit would help us to... um, forget distractions, whatever distractions we have at home, whatever we have distractions uh, through our phones, that we would strictly focus on this passage of Matthew. I, I, I pray that the Spirit would use my preparations my, um, to, to further the gospel here, to further our walk with you, um, to dig down and dig deep. Spirit, I pray that you would um, help us through this. In your name I pray, amen. So here, the, the sermon, my, I guess the points of my sermon are going to be twofold. So one through five is going to be the passion theme, and then six through 16 are going to be the responses to specifically Jesus' teaching. Um, so one through five will be broken down by what I call the clashing of the timelines. There's Jesus' timeline, and then there's the... Jewish leaders timeline, or I called it the coalesce timeline because it's more than just one specific aspect of the Jewish leaders. And then the second part of the sermon will be a response to Jesus's teaching. So it will be, um, one will be the selfless act, and the second one will be the guilty betrayal. And so let's start with verses one through five. Uh, what Matthew's doing here is kind of creating a conclusion of the discourse that Matthew brought, expounded last week, and is starting to introduce the passion narrative of Jesus. And if you look on how Matthew actually presents his gospel, he basically takes um, Jesus' life and just focuses into certain aspects of his life, right? So you take chapter 1, which is his lineage, chapter 2 and 3 is the birth of Jesus, the Christmas story, then he goes on the Sermon on the Mount, then he goes on and um, the, his ministry in Galilee. So he really s- slows the storyline down to, to, to make a point, to say, hey, I'm emphasizing this aspect of the book, And here we see that he's really slowing things down by two days. He's saying in two days, so less than 48 hours, this is going to happen. So the next two chapters is approximately at most a week, if not less. So my challenge to you as the listener and to me as the preacher is to slow down with Matthew. Don't rush through the text, especially the next two chapters. Dig down, dig deep. Because if you remember what Paul said in Colossians, if not for the resurrection, we of all people are to be pitied. So my challenge is take this 
the next two chapters of Matthew and really really try to understand and see how it affects and applies into your life because if this is false then the rest of our faith it crumbles apart according to Paul so let's jump back clashing of the timeline so we have Jesus's timeline here in verse verses one and two when Jesus had finished all these words he said to his disciples you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion so one aspect I wanted to really point out is the words, all these words. So Matthew, we've already gone through four discourses, as I've mentioned already. And with each discourse, he's ended each one by saying, and it happened that when Jesus had finished, which is different than what he says here. Here he says, when Jesus had finished all these words. So it seems like he's creating a form of completion or or combining them all together. And if we consider the audience of Matthew, which is Jewish, he's specifically writing to the Jews, I think a Jewish audience would click and jump back to Deuteronomy 32 on when Moses completed his sayings. And he said, this is Deuteronomy 32, 44, all the words of his song. So everything that Moses said before, and he then gives them a, a, an action. Take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you say, command your son to observe carefully even all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. So I think there's a case to be made here that when Matthew says in all these sayings, that it includes the entire teaching ministry of Jesus. And here, if we take all, that and say, okay, and now we, we look back at verse 2 where, where Jesus says, you know. So he's specifically talking to the 12 disciples here. And he says, you know that after two days, so there's two things that they know. After two days the pass is the Passover, which for them is kind of self-explanatory because they do this. It's a yearly basis. Um, it's less than 48 hours away. I'm sure their, their clocks were ticking. Um, but it's, it's a yearly feast that commemorates the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And then for the disciples, when they hear it, they say, oh, this is a week-long event where there's going to be various festivities, including a sacrificing of a lamb and then eating that lamb uh, in companies of 10 or more. And we'll see this actually happen in the next section where what's what we call the Last Supper is actually Passover taking place. So Jesus says, you know that the Passover is in, t- is in two days. And then he says, you know the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. So this is the third time or the fourth time Jesus says that there is going to be, I am going to die and be handed over to, to uh, in this case, he says, the Romans. So Jesus here is referencing that second aspect of his road, right? He, he, when I read Matthew 20, he kind of divided it from going from Gentiles or from the, from the Jews to the Jewish leaders and then from the Jewish leaders to the Romans. Here he specifically is focusing on that second aspect where it goes from the Jewish leaders to the Romans because the Romans are the ones that crucify Jesus. And so for us... We already know what happens to Jesus. For the disciples, if we insert ourselves into this passage, 
they, they, have, they, they have two options. They could either take Jesus at his word or ignore it and say that, that, that he, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. So then Matthew brings up a second timeline, as what I called it, the coalesce timeline. So here we see in verse 3, chief priests, elders, and the high priest named Caiaphas. So throughout Matthew, if you remember, and I won't be offended if you don't, but I preached a few months ago, and I said that there's a, a opposition a, a conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And it starts out fairly mild in the beginning of Matthew, but as you progress, it gets very, very heated to the point where there are two other situations or two other verses where the Jews, the, the Jewish leaders basically had enough of Jesus. They kind of almost drew a line. They said, well, we're going to go and destroy him. That was in chapter 12. And then they also said the same thing in chapter 21, but they never did anything about it. It seems like here they're really drawing that line saying, look, after that feast, after this feast, we're drawing that line, this is it for him. And so why I called it a coalesced timeline is because there's a unified plotting between the high priest, chief priests, and the elders. And I think the idea or the proverb that is commonly said, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, is very applicable here because it would be, it's, it's basically a conglomerate of um, Pharisees and Sadducee leaders consulting together, forgetting their differences, consulting together to specifically target Jesus and kill Jesus. And so that, that opposition is really starting to grow, it will start to grow in the next two chapters. However, their timeline is very different than what Jesus just said, right? Jesus said, I'm going to die on the Passover. And then here we see the, the Jewish leaders specifically say they decided not to mess with Jesus during the festival. They decided to go after the festival, which from a tactical, tactical perspective, it very makes sense for, G, for, for the Jewish leaders because um, according to the research that I've done, Jerusalem experienced approximately a five-fold increase of the amount of people during, um, during this festival. So if there would be an uproar, if they decided to do it during the Passover and there happened to be an uproar, it would not be in their greatest interest to, for that to happen. So they basically said, let's, let, let's hold off, let's wait till after. So what, what do we make of this, right? There is a sense of completion that Matthew brings of Jesus' teaching and miraculous ministry. And now it's time for Jesus to, he kind of transition and starts this idea of Jesus accomplishing that death and resurrection. Um, and then Jesus predicted his, this is the fourth time he predicted his death and kind of that act is set into motion. And throughout the next two months, we'll see how that act actually is fulfilled. But now we could look back and say, okay, um, the conflict of the opposing plans ultimately shows that Jesus is a sovereign king who is in full control and willingly taking the road to the cross. I think we could, we as uh, having the entire book of Matthew, we could say that now. The disciples couldn't say it at this moment in time, but we could say that conclusion saying Jesus is sovereignly king who is in full control. And the reason why we say that is because the, the Jewish leaders who decided to kill Jesus 
their plan, they had a totally different plan, but essentially it 100% lined up with what Jesus predicted was going to happen. So that's, that's kind of the first section. This is a setup for the entirety of the next two chapters of Matthew where there, there's going to be a plan that's going to happen and it's just a matter of whose plan is going to happen. So there's th- that little conflict there. And now we jump to Matthew 26, 6 through 16, what I call the response to Jesus' teaching. So Matthew brings two people on, on board. And the reason why I say brings, because um, there, is, there seems to be uh, that it seems to be that Matthew here is not being chronological. In fact, all schol- not all, but majority of scholars agree that chronologically, this event of uh, the lady, he doesn't identify the, the woman, but the woman who poured the oil on Jesus um, actually happened before the triumphal entry of, um, of Jesus. So Matthew purposefully takes that he doesn't take it out of t- context. In fact, he, he purposely takes that scenario, that story, and places it right here. So our job as, as readers is to understand why does he place it right here? Why is it that it's not chronological? He thematically places it in this section. So now, like I said before, if we insert ourselves of as a reader, not knowing the end, right, we could see that, okay, there are two plans that are going to happen. We've seen and know of Jesus' teaching so far, and everything that he said has come into fruition so far. We are faced with a, with a question, just like this woman and Judas. What do I think of Jesus? What do I do with what Jesus has said so far? And here Matthew brings two direct responses that are actually very opposing. One is a selfless act, and the other is a greedy betrayal. So let's start with the selfless act. And I won't really focus on the redaction criticism on why this text is different than other gospels and how it came to be and what makes sense of that. If you do have questions about that, Talk to Nathan. I'm sure he has a book on it. Um, But a few things to know is this text is weird reading it from Western culture, right? There's Jesus Jesus comes into this household and a woman just starts pouring oil on his head. Um, So from our perspective, it's very random, very unusual, and I don't suggest that we start doing this. But what I am saying is back then... This was a normal gesture. It was normal for, uh, for, for the host to, to wash people's feet. To, to, uh, it was like a welcoming gesture almost. Just like in, in the Russian culture, there's a welcoming gesture of bringing a gift or, or some kind of gift when you're coming to someone's house. This was kind of that idea. And so the difference here. Or the, Matthew, what Matthew is emphasizing here is that it was a very expensive oil. And we see that by, by the disciples' reaction. In fact, Mark, Matthew doesn't mention this, but Mark makes it, Mark says that this oil was approximately a year's worth, year's salary worth. So it's, it's not cheap. 
And to say that the disciples' interjection was wrong would be very, especially from what we just went through, it would be very, I would probably make the same interjection as the disciples. So Matthew doesn't name, so he purposely doesn't name who this was. And I think he purposely focuses on the, the, the price of it, the great value, to emphasize the great sacrificial gesture that this woman has bestowed on Jesus. And we see how and why because Jesus explains it to us. All right, so... If pouring oil on a guest was a normal gesture, Mary pouring a year's salary worth of oil on her guest was a a symbol of great gratitude and devotion. I think when she heard Jesus say, I'm going to be crucified and die, she took him at his word. She, She took the evidence that she's seen of Jesus before, the entire teaching and miraculous ministry of Jesus, And she says, I believe what he's saying now. I believe that he's going to die. So she prepares, so she does what Jesus tells her, prepares herself and prepares him. And then we turn and see the greedy betrayal of of Judas. So if if we look at verses 14 or, yeah, 14 through 16, It says, then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him from then on, and he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. So I think what Matthew's doing here is creating a contrast. And And I'll explain why I think that. We have Judas who, sought, who, who he sought out the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders didn't sought, seek him out. He sought out, sought out the Jewish leaders. And I think Matthew here is pointing out a few things. One, he's one of the twelve. He is one who walked and experienced Jesus' love firsthand. He was on the front line of Jesus' ministry. He's the one that saw the lame walk the deaf to hear, the blind to see, all of that, he's seen personally Jesus have an effect on that. And then another thing that Matthew directly points at is the, the aspect of greed. And I'm sure it's more complicated than just greed, but Matthew seems to specifically point to greed. It's almost as he's, he's trying to make that comparison between the selfless sacrifice, the year's salary worth of oil versus this greedy person who's, who's looking, what it sounds like will, he's willing to accept any settlement amount that the Pharisees are giving him. If they gave him 10 shekels, he'd say, fine, works for me. So the assumption is that the payout is a, about one to four months pay, Right? And so we see here Matthew creating a, a, a comparison, a person that took Jesus at his word and was willing to sacrifice an immense amount of, of oil and, and money, and then a person in, who instead of sacrifices, instead goes out and tries to find gain from this situation. And so 
can be very difficult and very confusing. It's not as simple as we make it out to be. I mean, take Jesus as an example, right? So we, we're going to continue this in the next few chapters, and sorry whoever's preaching on this. But the idea here is later on we'll see Jesus in Gethsemane falling flat on his face and begging God, to the Father, for the cup to pass. But the Father's wills continue. The Father's will continues. Just as in Jesus' case, he didn't get what he wanted. He wanted the cup to pass. And sometimes that's the case it is for us in our everyday walk. Sometimes we want something to happen. We want life to be pardoned to someone. We want, we, we want our lives to be a certain way. But just like it wasn't, just like Jesus followed God's will and that wasn't God's will for his life, that might not be God's will for us. And there might not even be anyone to sympathize with you with what you're going through. But let me encourage you with this. And this is from our Romans men's Bible study. Romans 8. I would encourage you just to read Romans. If you're in that position, just read Romans. You will find it very encouraging. But Romans 5 through 8 specifically focuses on those who have been justified. If you have assurance in what Jesus has done, he says this, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And this is Paul talking. This is not my words. This is Paul who was, who was in the midst of crazy trials, beatings, prison. And then he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I think Jesus would align with this when he, after he prayed. I think he would say, for I consider that my sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that he would experience with the Father. And then we see, just as Mary and Judas were faced with the question, what do I do with Jesus' teaching? I think we are faced with that exact same question. What is our response to Jesus' teaching? We just went through Matthew, a big portion of Matthew, 25 chapters. Who are, what does that entail to you? What do you, those claims that Jesus has made of himself to be, what do you, who do you say Jesus is? And we're just reading, right? We cannot know for certain what led Judas being on the front line of Jesus' ministry to betray Jesus. However, we can know exactly what leads us to forget Jesus despite all that has been done on our behalf. So I would say, challenge your mundane stagnant Christian walk. And I'm talking to myself. I'm preaching to myself. Challenge that. 
Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation. Grow towards Christ's likeness. That's what we're here for. That's what the church is here for. That's what we're helping each other understand and act out. And then for the person here that truly cannot has certain questions about Jesus or needs more evidence. My plea is that don't hesitate. There's Will, there's Nathan, there's resources, there's books upon books that we're willing to give to you for you to find answers to your questions. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in questions in doubt. And if you still don't find that, We'll, we'll get together. We'll come to me, come to Nathan. We'll, we'll, we'll find answers together. And so, I'd like to say that Matthew here con- brings in this story to create a comparison of where we are with Jesus. And that question is going to be asked continually throughout the next two chapters. Jesus did this. What does that entail to us? Who do, who do you say Jesus is now that this has happened? And now that we live post-resurrection, what does Jesus' resurrection entail to you? And so at the end of this service, or I guess before we end, we're going to sing a song called What is Our Hope in Life and Death? And as easy as it is for us to just belt out a great song, I would implore you to think about the words. Think about the questions. There's a few questions there that are going to be asked. And then after you sing the song, ask yourself, are you true to those responses? For example, what is your only confidence? What will keep me to the end? Can we truly say that it's only Christ? The only confidence I have in my salvation is just Christ. What truly calms you down when you're troubled? I, I know there are troubled souls in here. I myself am troubled. What truly calms us down? I know we could get distracted by certain aspects of technology, but in the end, we still have to face that question. Who is Jesus for me? And each one of us has to answer that personally. We, we can't align with our parents' views. We can't align with our spouse's views. We, ourselves, as an entity, have to answer that question. So let us not just sing out of, you know, the way we do things, our form of worship, but let our hearts really truly resonate with the truth that we sing and examine your confidence, your hope, And let it be firmly rooted in Christ, the one who gave all, who asked Jesus or the Father to pass the cup, but then took it on willfully. And if you struggle to find that hope, reach out, ask for guidance. That's that's why we're here. We're all sinners in need of a big Savior. Let's pray.